So this is a culture of forgetting, forgetting our past, forgetting where we've come from. So much of the social justice movements in this country are trying to help us remember what happened right. and, to, and for us to be informed by that sense of remembering. So rituals and ceremonies do that for us as they're, they're mechanisms to remember. When You Die podcast. If it has to do with death and dying, we're talking about it. I'm Johanna Lunn, your host today. I've been really looking forward to this conversation today with a very special person. Day Shilkrit is internationally renowned as an author, artist, and teacher behind the Morning Altars movement, inspiring tens of thousands of people to make life more beautiful and meaningful through ritual, nature, and art. His work has helped many to pass through transitions of loss and of joy and embrace the ordinary wonder of life itself. Welcome, Day. Thank you so much for being here. Grateful to be here. Thank you for having me. My pleasure, truly. Mm. So, wow, you have two beautiful, beautiful books, like the tens of thousands of people that you've touched the first time I saw morning altars, I was just like, wow, this is, this is it. You know, mm. this, is, this is what I love. Mm. I collect rocks and pine cones and just do, been doing that since I was a young child toddling around in the woods. And so it was like, look what you can do with them. It's so gorgeous. It's not just this reveling in nature that you've discovered though, but a way of really harnessing that to work with loss and love and transitions and the interstitial itself yeah yeah i'd say meaning is the word that comes to mind we're making meaning i'll just start off by saying this i i do a teacher training and i tell my teachers that we're a trojan horse enterprise <laughs> and <laughs> and on the outside we're just you know we're just playing with berries and leaves and twigs and flower petals and to a four-year-old, it looks very attractive and simple. Even to a you know 44-year-old, it looks beautiful and like art. I think the subversive piece of it is that who knew that berries and twigs and flower petals could help someone remember their dead, could help someone move through a post-traumatic stress disorder, could help someone ground their body after giving birth. These are actual stories of people that I've worked with where this process and practice has actually helped them move through some of the biggest and smallest life transitions. And so the practice is subversive because we're really we're just playing with nature, but we're opening ourselves up to a profoundly important meaning making mechanism. And that is working with ritual and working with creativity and working with impermanence. And those are kind of the heart and soul of the practice itself. I started this practice because I needed something to do after my father died. And I was totally grief ridden, couldn't really even socialize, barely could work, really heartbroken. My dog, who I adopted from my father at the time, got me out of the house walking on dog walks. And my head was down because I was kind of lost in thought at the time, trying to figure out what happened? How did this happen? And, you know, seven months of that, by the way. 
And, you know, grief is incredibly disorienting and destabilizing as it should be. And so I was really lost in my mind. So my head was down and I was looking at the ground on these dog walks and I would find these beautiful objects. And eventually the dog and I climbed to the top of a hill and we sat under a tree and I just started to arrange them into some kind of order. An hour went by like it was a minute and before me was something beautiful, but internally what was happening was that I recognized or remembered order again, something other than feeling totally disoriented. And it was in the art, it was in the external that helped me remember. And so I started to create them every day as a way to remember what's important, a way to remember my father. Eventually I had a major breakup of a relationship. So a, re a way to remember myself inside of that. And eventually, you know, as life does, it's not just about grief, it's celebration, it's things change. And so I started to make them for all transitions of life. And then it took off and became a thing, a movement in the world. And so now I train hundreds of people around the world to bring it into nursing homes and elementary schools and churches and synagogues and businesses and community centers, botanical gardens. And so people are playing, which is good. We need to play, but, and they're learning how to exercise this muscle of wonder, which is really important. And mostly they're learning how to make meaning. Meaning making is the renaissance that I'm trying to spark in the culture because we're such a meaningless, meaning devoid culture. Yeah, I'm with you 100% on that. I, I find working in the end of life space, especially that so often the deep sense of, of grief is at, did I really live? Yeah. You know, what do I have? Did yeah. I waste this life? And of course, we all are living, but we just are not always conscious because we don't have any bookends to our day. Exactly. I think the rituals that we make are very unconscious rituals. So we do have them, but we have forgotten. Certainly my grandparents came from and going back in time, there were many, many more rituals that marked our time and space. But I think COVID made it really, really vivid to me. A comic once said, because of the pandemic, time became stupid <laughs> because suddenly time was this very fluid, flexible thing because nothing was marking our day. If you were working from home, it, it's like you weren't even leaving the house and coming back. You keep on using the word marking, which is appropriate when we're talking about transitions, but let's unpack the word for a minute because why do we use the word marking and how else do we mark things in life? One of the metaphors that I often talk about publicly when I speak about ritual is Karen, C-A-I-R-N-S, which is the stack of stones that folks make on a trail in order to denote or mark the turn or the bending of a path, right? Mm -hmm. So it basically says to people coming after you, don't keep going straight, turn here. So ritual works in the same exact way. It plays with markings, but it, instead of space, it plays with time. And it basically says, don't keep going straight. Instead of turn, the word is return. Mm. Return here. Return to what's important. Return to your body. Return to your ancestors. Return to your family. Return to your home. Return to the change in season, whatever it is. 
It's a Karen for time, which I've never actually said before, but it's actually quite true. Rituals mark time. So when that comic said time has become stupid, really how I hear that is time has become pathless or wayless. It's we yeah. don't know where we are inside of it. Ancestrally speaking, at least my own culture, which I come from a Jewish culture, we are really skillful with marking time. And I think it's because our ancestors understood that it, the consequences of if you don't, if you stop counting, which by the way, is the etymology of the word ritual is to yeah. count. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So if you stop counting, for instance, in our tradition, we often count in seven, seven days of the week, seven years, 49 years, we have a certain system of counting time. Why? Because when you actually get to the point of the marker, something else happens. Right. For instance, like seven days, we rest on the seventh day. So something else happens. There's another, there's something else that needs to be protected and honored and remembered and marked. Mm -hmm. And then you return back to the pattern or the cycle. Mm -hmm. So rituals for, let's say, death anniversaries are very important. For instance, my father's anniversary is February 27th. You don't mark that every year. The consequences are you forget. You forget you're dead. So the markings are a way of remembering. They're a mechanism to remember and a mechanism to return. It's very powerful. I'm reminded when we lose someone, they're not physically present with us, but in many ways, they have never really left us. We don't get to go hang out with them or have a meal or any of those things, but there is something that- I do every day. <laughs> I have a whole wall on my, in my house of ancestral photos, probably around 75 photos in one wall. And every time I share a meal with them, I acknowledge, I acknowledge them because yeah. I wouldn't be here without them. So, and that's a ritual, right? Is, is a way of turning towards that, which is that, which needs to be remembered mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. or those that need to be remembered, turning mm -hmm. back towards them. Life is inherently forgetful. That is being human. We forget all of the time. So we have these mechanisms called rituals and ceremonies that help us as Robin Wall Kimmerer says in her book, Braiding Sweetgrass, she says, our elders tell us that our ceremonies and rituals are ways we can remember to remember. Right. right? We right. need mechanisms to help us that we have to help us remember that we have to remember. Yeah. And so that's the point of it. The, and, and the, uh, the flip side of that quote is if you don't remember, you forget. And then the question is, what happens when you forget? Right. And you just have to look at the dominant culture of North America. Or another way of saying it, Rob Bresney once said, who's an astrologer, he said, um, the United States of amnesia is how right. he called it. Right. right. So this is a culture of forgetting forgetting our past, forgetting where we've come from. So much of the social justice movements in this country are trying to help us remember what happened right. and, to, and for us to be informed by that sense of remembering. So rituals and ceremonies do that for us as they're, they're mechanisms to remember. Right. Well, it's the antithesis to materialism 
because we've been sold on the fact that, you know, if you buy this lip balm, you'll feel better and the next thing will make you feel better. And then we are in a cycle of things instead of in the cycle of a richer fabric that we actually came from. Yeah, when you say the lip balm, and what, how I'm hearing it is we're, we are addicted to novelty, mm-hmm. right? We're looking for the new thing, the next thing, the inspired thing. It's, it's novelty addiction. The antithesis of that or the antidote to that is memory, mm. right? Like n- not always looking forward. Looking forward is a way of basically saying forgetting. Mm-hmm. The way forward is by remembering. And the word remember has two words in it or two, essentially two meanings in it. The RE means doing it again. And the word member is referring to, we don't really have the verb to member anymore, but we have a verb that's like membership, Mm -hmm. which means whole, right? A gathering of of one body. But Mm -hmm. the RE is basically saying that was broken right that dispersed that that is no longer so we have to bring it back together again to remember is a gathering in again because life is dispersing it's forgetting we lose things all of the time including our dead Mm -hmm. so the mechanisms to remember help us to recollect or recollect it's a play on words to recollect or recollect our memories back into wholeness. And when we do that, we can see ourselves in that. For instance, like every meal, I recollect my ancestors back into some semblance of memory. I remember I come from a people. So I find myself in that because one day I will be an ancestor. Mm -hmm. Right? And so I live my life with them in it so that I can remember that I'm not separate or distinct or special. I'm a part of them and they are a part of me. And just turning towards them during a meal, a small little ritual, let's just say, take a pinch of bread off my plate and offer it to them is a way for me to remember them and be remembered by them perhaps. Mm -hmm. It's very powerful. It really is day, especially I, I do feel the pandemic, again, really brought this forward, this kind of isolation feeling that so many people have. And when we lose someone, when someone dies, it's like we've lost part of ourselves. We've lost a whole set of relationship that is no longer there. So it is um, that sense of of ritual of remembering, that's very, very powerful. Mm -hmm. Many of us don't really have a relationship with rituals and ceremonies. We might have a relationship with routines Mm -hmm. that we call rituals, but we don't necessarily have a relationship with ritual. One of the things that I'm trying to do both in my speaking, including on this podcast, and also in my book, in Hello Goodbye, that book, I really tried to refer to it over and over again as a ritual cookbook. Yeah. Because Sure, you can go to a five-star Michelin restaurant and you can get served a very fancy meal, but you're probably not going out to eat every single meal. You're probably cooking some of your meals in your kitchen. So I want people to see ritual in the same way, which is it's accessible. It doesn't have to be something fancy 
like in the churches or synagogues, it doesn't, or mosques, it doesn't necessarily have to be something that is only connected to your ancestors or passed down through lineage, <laughs> that we are creative people and we can be creative when it comes to rituals and ceremonies. Some of them can be remembered and passed through time and passed down through lineages. And some of them can be made up on the spot because someone is in need and there's an urgency around it. In the same way that like even the worst cook could probably make an omelet or scrambled eggs. <laughs> someone who is totally unschooled in ritual can probably make some semblance of meaning when it's needed. And so I'm trying to empower and awakens people's sense of creativity when it comes to ritual, because we need more people making meaning, especially as things continue to change in the culture. If you don't make meaning with the times that you're in, then you don't know where you are in it, going back to our reference of Karen's. Mm -hmm. The meaning is the markers, especially during the pandemic. You, you keep on speaking about the pandemic. The markers can help us to navigate times of uncertainty. They can help us understand where we're at inside of it. Yeah, absolutely. And so for someone who hasn't seen your wonderful books, Hello, Goodbye is a wonderful cookbook of rituals for all occasions, for parents, for people who never became parents, for all of life's transitions. And it's absolutely fabulous. Now, so what would you say, what are the components of a ritual? So a ritual, first and foremost, has a beginning, middle, and an end. Mm -hmm. It's not something that exists all of the time. It's something that you enter into. Spatially speaking, it's almost like entering into like a cathedral. You enter into something, you're in something, and then it ends, akin to, let's say, a theater production. You enter into the theater, you see a show, you know when it's over. Yeah. So a ritual has the same kind of mechanism. It's you enter into it. It's a different space. It asks different things from us. It doesn't work with, with things like rationale. It works with symbolism. It's not trying to be rational. It's trying to be symbolic, right? So things take on meaning that in our day-to-day -day life, it wouldn't mean anything. I'll give you an example. Sunday, my best friend got married. She's part of a Jewish culture as well. And in our Jewish weddings, we have a variety of rituals inside of the wedding ceremony. That's an important distinction, by the way. The ceremony, this is Victor Turner, who is an ethnographer from the 50s. He distinguished ceremony and ritual as ceremonies affirm, mm -hmm. rituals transform. Big difference. So the affirmation of the wedding ceremony is these two people are, are coming together in union. The rituals in the ceremony are many, and one of them, maybe a popular one that folks have seen in movies, is that at the end of the ceremony, the groom breaks a glass. And the meaning of that is many. We have different interpretations of it to remember all that we've lost, to remember that we, lost, that we were kicked out of our homeland, to the destruction of our temple, um, to remember that, like, even in the midst of harmony and unity, life is broken and we have to remember that. So lots of interpretations. And so he smashes the glass at the end of the wedding and we all scream Mazel Tov, which means, you know, like, congratulations. 
And in a day-to-day life, in a non-ritual life, that would never make any sense. Why would someone step on a glass? That has no meaning in it, right? But in this cathedral of the wedding, inside of this ceremony, inside of this ritual, it has enormous meaning. It's all symbolism, right? And so this is what I call in my book, symbolic action. He's breaking something to mean something. And rituals are always dealing with symbolic action. We submerge something to mean something. We bury something to mean something. We tear something. We cut something. We eat something to mean something. (laughs) So the symbolism is pointing towards something. And so that's also what distinguishes ritual from, let's say, routine. Routines are trying to get us from point A to point B, like a nighttime routine. They're trying to get us from like cleaning the house to bed. So we shut off the lights and close the curtains and wash the dishes and blah, blah, blah. A nighttime ritual has no interest in getting you from point A to point B. It's only interested in creating meaning. So a nighttime ritual would, for instance, like you could wash your hands, but it's not about getting them clean. It might be about remembering something from the day. What's something from the day that I don't want to take into bed with me? What's a stress that I'm wrestling with that I I need to let go of? And so I could symbolically wash my hands before bed to mean something bigger. It's not about cleaning my hands. It's about letting go of something. (laughs) So rituals work in that way. They work with meaning. And by the way, the etymology of the word meaning means a way to remember. That's actually the root of the word meaning. When we create meaning, we're looking to remember something. And in that process, is that transformational? Yeah, exactly. Because for instance, let's say I was going to bed worrying about money, right? And I take the water and let's say I pour it three times over my hands. And I'm asking myself, what is something that I'm looking to let go of from the day? I'm looking to let go of holding this stress right now. I'm just going to let myself surrender and rest tonight. I'm going to let go of that. The transformation is from holding to letting go. Mm -hmm. Right? I'm not affirming anything or confirming anything. It's not a ceremony. But I'm transforming my grasping and holding and stress into something that's more relaxed and open and free. That's the transformation. And that's mm-hmm. very small ritual. Mm-hmm. And in terms of grief, in, in what way, like, can you break down what, what is transform, transformational about a grief ritual? Sure. I mean, for instance, we started the conversation talking about morning altars. In my tradition, we have these time markers when someone dies. Mm-hmm. Um, we count in seven days. Mm-hmm. which we call Sheva or Shiva. Mm-hmm. It looks very different. We count seven days after a death, and then we count 30 days after mm-hmm. a death, which is called Shloshim in Hebrew. And then we count a year. So we go from like day of seven days, 30 days, a year. And then we kind of just cycle back into a year. And when my dad died for those 30 days, 
I was creating these morning altars. So I would go on a walk with my dog and we would go, as I said at the beginning, we would make different altars as a way to metabolize the grief. And so the transformation that happened was that I'd start off those walks just feeling completely wrecked and heartbroken and confused. And along the way in collecting material and sitting under a tree and putting into some order, the transformation that happened was that I would in some ways find myself back into clarity and balance mm -hmm. and peace. I was offering them to my father and so remembering him as well. I've been doing it since it's been, it's been 12 years. The ritual itself of creating these altars was a way to transform my grief into beauty. Mm -hmm. Something that felt beautiful. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So in that sense that since your father isn't with you physically, is it kind of a transforming the inner father in a sense coming? No, in? I would say no. Um, my inner father, like my actual father or me as a father? Well, no, I kind of meant like as your actual father, bringing him into your inner world in a different way because he's not in your outer world. Oh, yeah. Um, I would say that he it, it's the process of the repet the repetition of doing it over every day. That process, that rhythm is a way to ex is to take that remembering of him and to bring it back into the world. And so internally, I'm trying to bring the memories of my dad externally. I'll give you an example. Last year during his death anniversary, I usually work with leaves and berries and bark and flowers. But last year I wanted to do something different for him. And so I remembered that my dad's favorite dessert was Little Debbie's, those like chocolate Swiss rolls. And so I went to the store, I would never eat these or buy them, uh, but he loved them. And so I took a packet, I took each one and I made a symmetrical altar out of these little Debbie's and I put candles all around it. And I spoke to my dad, I spoke to him and I laughed with him. I basically said like, I would never do this, but you love this. I'm taking something that I love to do, which is to make art and to make symmetrical art outside. I love doing that. And, but I want to bring, I wanted to weave you more into this. And so I'm using a dessert that you loved and I hope that you love it. And I hope that you can feast upon this with me. And that was me externalizing him. Otherwise that would just be like another memory that would just sit inside of me that would be really insignificant. But making something out of his dessert externalized it. it. It brought it into something that was like unique and beautiful and real again, mm -hmm. if that makes sense. Yeah, oh, it does, it does, it does. And it, it reminds me a bit of the Day of the Dead ritual of making a feast for your ancestors and very specifically for more recent people who have died their favorite food goes on the altar and it's a 
very elaborate, it could be simple, but it's usually pretty elaborate setup. But then it's the conversation. You're talking to your mother, your father, your brother, your sister. And it might be that you have a difficult conversation. You might say, you know, I didn't like you very much when you were alive. Mm -hmm. And then some healing around that can happen. And usually there's a request in the day of the dead. Like, so now I want you to help me in my life. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, lots of cultures all over the world. I'm thinking of Japan. I'm thinking of Mexico. I'm thinking of Peru, my own culture. There are lots of different ways to presence the dead mm -hmm. and lots of interesting and creative ways to give them a place to rest and arrive or maybe arrive and rest it's a better way of saying it spirit houses lanterns altars different ways that we create a place for them without the physicalization of it. It's all internal. And when things are internal, it's almost impossible to understand what's happening. When we can see it externally, we can remember and understand better what's happening. I'll give you an example. I teach every summer for, I think this will be the sixth year at the historic Lakewood Cemetery in Minneapolis, Minnesota. And they have me build a 20 foot altar and hundreds of people come and we have them sometimes write their, the name of their dead on stones or in seeds and they plant it on the altar. We have lots of ways where folks come and they, they can remember their loved ones. And then I teach two workshops. And oftentimes the workshops are specifically for families that are grieving. One year, there was a lot of children at the workshop and I brought them through the morning altars practice where they go off and they make their altars and they all have symbolism in it. And, and then we go and view them together so that we can witness each other's stories and memories. Mm. And this one five-year-old boy grabs me by the hand first one and says, I want to go first. So I motion the crowd, like, let's follow this boy to his piece. And we go there and it's a beautiful piece filled with, berries and leaves and flower petals. And he says to me, What's, what do you notice? What do you see? Like a question, mm. five years old. Mm. And so I asked the group, well, what do we see? And people are starting to notice that there's seven, everything's in sevens. There's seven berries, seven leaves, seven twigs, seven flower petals. And he says, that's because my brother was seven when he died, right? This was a jumping off point for this five-year-old boy to talk about his brother in the symbolism of the piece. Just seven was enough to bring this boy into a flood of memories. Whereas if you were sitting in an office with him in therapy trying to talk about his brother, he probably wouldn't have opened up like that. But as he was making this, he was actively remembering his brother. Right. So it's in that when we externalize the memory of my father's favorite dessert or the age that his brother was when he died or whatever, when we externalize it, we can remember again. We can see it outside of us and remember it again. 
I love that story. I absolutely love that story. Yeah, it's a good one. Yeah, it's powerful. Well, I, I think for all of us, that's really powerful. But for children, especially, we've lost the language of grief. It's through the things that you're doing, bringing art and nature into this ritual setting. It's powerful because it creates a new language for people to open into that isn't threatening to them. I think people have a lot of difficulty around grief because they don't know how to talk about it, but they also get concerned about what are other people thinking of me? There's a big wall. Oh, you're grieving. It's a big grief. It's your parents. And then you became separate from the rest of society. One of the most important things that a ritual offers us is something to do. When it comes to grief, I think a lot of people flail because they feel almost disempowered inside of it, which makes sense, right? Like we are in a time and culture that loves control, right? We are all being told through advertising that we've got it, that we're in control. We can handle it. If you look at commercials, these are most of the commercials are like, you have a problem, this thing can solve it. Let's bring you back into control, back into certainty, back into being on top of it all, whatever it is. Grief is basically saying you're not in control. This life is bigger than you. And as much as you wanted this person or this thing to be around forever, it's not. And so I think that ritual and ceremonies are ways that we can do something inside of our grief, with our grief, that actually changes it. It doesn't disrespect it. It doesn't turn away from it. It doesn't make it wrong. It employs it. And that's a very unusual thing Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. to employ grief. For what purpose? To create more life. We're taking sorrow and we're employing it to feed and love and be grateful for and praise life. Ritual does it with elegance. It does it in a way that raises the grief up, which by the way, is the etymology of the word altar. It means to raise up. So the things that we put down on our altars, we're trying to raise them up. Rituals can raise up our grief, but it asks something from it. It's not saying like, look, don't touch. It's actually saying touch. And here's what you can do. I'm remembering a ritual in Hello Goodbye for folks that have been through a traumatic experience. And the ritual is very simple. It's just asking the person doing the ritual, almost all of my rituals ask for some witnessing. So it's basically saying like, invite over a friend or two. And the ritual is very simple. You get, let's say like five or six stones and with charcoal or chalk or whatever, on each stone, write down one thing that this traumatic experience has taken from you. 
So each stone gets one word of something that that trauma has taken from you. All the ritual is, is stacking the stones until they fall and doing it again. Just keep stacking them until they fall down. Even saying it right now, I'm getting teary-eyed because that's what the trauma has done to us or them. It brings you into that fall where you're collapsed. And to actually be able to physicalize it and see it before you is very healing. To be witnessed, seeing that rise and fall by your friends, by people that you trust is very healing because you're basically going through the motion, the action of what it has felt like to go through this experience. By the way, the end of that ritual, the way that it concludes is a washing of or a pouring water on each stone and wiping off those words from the stone, which is also quite healing to be witnessed in that. The point of that story is you're doing something. You're not just going through a traumatic experience and trying to live with it or go to therapy and talk your way through it. But you're doing something physical that symbolizes the meaning of what happened and the potential for healing. Wow, Dave, thank you for all of these amazing tools for living and for bringing awe back into the world. Mm, thank you. So it's, good. It's a, I, I will gladly rally my troops under that banner. <laughs> well, I'll be there with you. <laughs> we need more awe. We definitely Daily, need Daily, hourly. Yeah, it's really true. It's yeah. true. Fortunately, it is readily available. Just look outside your window. That's right. That's right. Yeah. 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 Well, to our listeners, they can find you at morningalters.com. Morning, like this morning, alters, A-L-T-A-R-S.com or Instagram or Facebook. Great, great. Yeah. And two beautiful, beautiful books. And I'm sure there are people out there that'll be really interested in your training as well. You do workshops, but you also do teacher training in That's Morning Alters, which is a very powerful powerful thing for people to add, particularly if you're already a therapist or an artist to extend your practice in that direction. That's right. We have each cohort is around 100 people from around the world. And it is maybe the most powerful thing that I've made. It's going very deeply into these themes that we've been talking about, the themes of wonder, the themes of nature connection, the themes of creativity. And of course, ritual and impermanence. I'm giving away a lot of this practice to people working with different communities um, and serving different groups of people so that they can take this back into their communities and clients and, and places around the world. We have, I think right now we have uh, teachers represented in over 15 countries. I would love if folks are interested, morningalters.com slash teacher training is how to find more information. So cool. It's like helping us restore our own humanity that we've lost. Yeah. So big, big, big gratitude to you Thank for you. that. Thanks yeah. for helping amplify it. My pleasure. My pleasure. 
And thanks for all the good work that you're doing and, and the good questions that you're asking and bringing awareness to a topic that we so desperately need to examine and learn more of in our times. Thank you. Thank you. Mm -hmm. This conversation is brought to you by the When You Die Project. From existential afterlife questions to palliative care and the nuts and bolts of green burial, if it has to do with death, we're talking about it. WhenYouDie.org